0: plushcare.com slash weight loss
1: hello you are very welcome to the tonight show a sweltering heat wave stretches from california to texas wildfires in europe and italy braces itself for record-breaking temperatures of 49 degrees coming up we discuss the scorching temperatures engulfing the world Plus, is it too hot to holiday? We explore your consumer rights, if your trip is impacted by the high temperatures, and ask if you would reschedule to avoid heat. I'm going there on Sunday, but you just have to take all the precautions that people are telling you to take.
2: No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Not in that kind of just streaming heat anyway, like, you know.
1: And we get the latest on a new drug heralded as a breakthrough in the battle against Alzheimer's. Plus, as Russia puts a stop to grain exports from Ukraine, BBC's James Waterhouse gives us the very latest live from Key. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, Meteorologists have warned that temperatures will continue to soar across Europe this week. The Italian island of Sardinia has been mooted as the location for what could be a record-breaking high for Europe. We now go live to Giles Gibson, who is joining us from Rome this evening. And Giles, I'm conscious that it's 11 o'clock at night there, but it's still 28 degrees Celsius, even though the sun has gone down for a number of hours now. What are conditions like there during the day?
3: Yeah, a little bit of respite here now that the sun has gone down, but that also means that the the humidity rises. And so if you don't have air conditioning here, if you're a tourist visiting or a local, then you're in for a pretty uncomfortable night after many of those in a row now. Certainly, local residents are used to hot summers. Many of them, for example, flee the city. The city really traditionally empties out in July and August. Uh, because uh, Romans are so aware that this city is pretty uncomfortable when it gets into sort of the mid-30s. But what we we are experiencing right now is just so much worse than it traditionally has been. Uh, We are going to see temperatures of about 41 or 42 degrees Celsius on Tuesday, and that is about 10 degrees higher than the average temperature for this time of year here in Rome and that's why we're getting this kind of constant stream of guidance from the authorities trying to get people to change their behaviors really whether you're a local or a tourist uh, they are saying for example you know not to go out in the uh, the very hottest part of the day between 11 and 6 trying to discourage tourists, for example, from battling on and trying to, you know, take in all of the sites like the Colosseum, despite the temperature being in the high 30s or uh, the uh, low 40s, and they're also just giving the usual messages about drinking lots of water and and particularly keeping an eye on any uh, elderly neighbors who they might have who are particularly at risk in this kind of weather.
1: Uh, Giles, a lot of people I'm conscious watching will never have experienced the high 30s, early 40s temperatures. Uh, what is that actually like? How do people just go about their normal average day?
3: I think the best way of describing it to somebody is, to, is if you've ever kind of landed on a plane in a really hot country and then, you know, the door opens and you step out into the air and you just have that kind of wall of heat, you can almost feel it kind of hitting you, slapping you in the face when you get off the plane. That is what it has been feeling like here in the Italian capital over the last couple of days when you leave your office or your house where you perhaps have air conditioning. Uh, Certainly there are ways of kind of Uh, Doing as the Romans do of trying to cope so uh, they have these traditional cast iron water fountains that are dotted all over the city Where you can actually get very cold very clean water just sort of almost anywhere you are But once the temperature gets into the high 30s or the low 40s It just becomes Really difficult to just just go about your sort of everyday tasks go about your your daily life
1: Uh, Are people concerned?
3: there is a lot of concern and speaking to locals i think they're reflecting the facts that these temperatures are just so much higher than they're used to it's it's not a surprise that this city uh, gets hot in the summer i've only lived here for about six months and i had repeated warnings about the facts that the summer was going to be very hot that the city was going to empty out because it is just you know it's a very difficult place to be in july and august but i think locals also do have a sense and, and what we're hearing from the, the, the government as well is, is a sense that this is very different, that this is something that needs to be taken very seriously, and that's why they are trying to, to get people to change their behavior, to not, for example, try and go out for a run or a bike ride or something in the middle of the day when those temperatures are at those really dangerous levels.
1: All right, uh, James Gibson. thank you for bringing us that update. As Europe continues to be overwhelmed by an intense heat wave, we ask if these temperatures are now the new normal and how they are impacting holidaymakers. We'll hear to discuss this further. Is Minister of State Neil Richmond, Sinn Féin TD Louise O'Reilly, journalist with The Irish Independent Sinead Ryan, climate journalist John Gibbons, and live from New York is Saif O'Neill, coordinator of The Stop. Climate Chaos Coalition. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, John, we've heard about what's happening in Europe, but we're seeing this right across the world, aren't we? We're seeing it in North Africa and Japan and in China, um, incredible t- temperatures in America. What are they experiencing?
4: Yeah, I mean, we're looking really at not just to... Typically, we think of heat waves. but What we're looking at here is this is affecting the entire northern hemisphere. So this is basically half of our planet is currently in, 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 in effectively in a, in a semi-global heatwave condition, which to the best of my knowledge, certainly in, in, in recorded history, we have no analogue for what's happening at the moment. Uh, we're looking Canada, China, North Africa, North America. There are currently 70 million people in North America under an extreme heat advisory. That's a quarter of the population. Southeast Asia, China, Southern Europe, Turkey. Now, in China, yesterday, we had the all-time Chinese uh, heat record was breached. It was 52.2 degrees centigrade. Now, that is a is 1.7 degrees centigrade high, hotter than the highest temperature ever recorded in China. So, what we're seeing here, these are not just incremental, tiny little additions to the record. These records are falling. They're smashing. Now, To give you another example, June 2023, just last month, was the hottest June globally ever recorded, but it breached the previous hottest June by 1.47 degrees centigrade. This This isn't about heating. This is about a jump. We're moving into what looks like a phase shift in our climate system. This is something that scientists have warned us about for years, that we're approaching a tipping point in our climate system where basically a whole bunch of feedbacks gather together and the whole system starts to go haywire.
1: And is there anything in particular that is happening that's causing this very particular intense heat that we're seeing, this this jump that you talk about?
4: It's very difficult to say, but for example, we know right now that we have a marine heatwave across the North Atlantic. Now, to give you an idea of how extensive this is, this is covering 40 million square kilometers and this is a heat wave penetrating this isn't just the surface water this is penetrating down 20 meters so you imagine the kind of energy required to to heat up a marine heat wave across the entire 40 million square kilometers in in areas of the north atlantic temperatures are running 5 degrees centigrade above Normal. So we have a vast buildup of heat. And I think there's some speculation that what's occurring here is that as the oceans are heating and and we're getting this surface temperature increase, that essentially the ability of the oceans to, to moderate our temperature, normally, as you know, when you're close to the ocean, the temperatures, the land temperatures are cooled by the ocean. What's happening now is ocean surface temperatures are rising fast, and that basically gives land temperatures nowhere to go. And I suspect. That's part of the reason why we're seeing such dramatic increases. And the critical thing to understand here is we've always had heat waves, but we've never had simultaneous heat waves on practically every continent.
1: What we've seen in Ireland in the last number of days is this really intense torrential rain at times. Perhaps not that unusual for July, but is that related to the heat? Is it the corollary of the heat?
4: It would appear so. The effect that we're looking at here is basically the jet stream. Now, the jet stream is this high altitude, fast-moving weather system that basically is pinned between the tropics and the Arctic. And the jet stream controls much of the weather systems in the the northern hemisphere. Now, as the temperature gradient between the Arctic and, and the tropics is decreasing because of rapid Arctic warming, what we find is the jet stream is starting to wobble. Now, when it wobbles downwards, it pulls Arctic air into North America, into Europe. We had that in Ireland, for example, extreme uh, minus 17 degrees in 2010. That was a jet stream wobble. Now, when the jet stream wobbles in the other direction, Kira, it pulls up intensely hot tropical air into a part of the world where, where we're simply not used to this. And our systems are not set up. In Europe, for example... Very few people have air conditioning. It's quite unusual. Why? Because we're not used to these kind of temperatures. And I think this is critically important, particularly for our agriculture systems across Europe. There's various uh, agriculture organisations warning about huge drops, the European cereal production this year is expected to be at least 10% down. So that's on top of losses that we're experiencing from the Ukraine war.
1: And I just want to go to uh, Save O'Neill, who is in New York. I know at a conference where they are discussing uh, climate change. The big question I think people will be wondering at home is, is this shift, this jump that John talks about, is this going to become the new normal in Europe and across the world?
5: Absolutely. I think we have every reason to agree with the Secretary General of the United Nations that we're in a global planetary climate emergency. Um, So this is likely to uh, be a feature of our weather into the future. We're going to uh, experience more drought, more heat waves, more extreme temperatures, more heat stress, more deaths as a result of heat stress, loss of productivity, loss of uh, crop yields, as John was outlining, and uh, also extreme rainfall. Events. So, because warmer air holds more moisture, this partly explains why, in addition to these high temperatures, countries are experiencing deluges and floods like they've never experienced before. Um, I arrived in New York last week for the uh, Sustainable Development Goals High Level Summit, and just a week before that, the Hudson area of New York upstate had experienced uh, dramatic floods, washing away roads and houses, literally washing away roads. So, there's no way of predicting exactly where those kind of extreme rainfall events are going to take place. Climate science is evolving all the time and it will get better at predicting it, but there's no way for us to adapt to that kind of um, extreme weather. Uh, uh, The best thing we we can do is try to ensure that it doesn't get worse. And that means putting a stop to the emissions of carbon pollution essentially from burning fossil fuels. Um, And just to to give you a figure on that, we have never managed to um, stop the growth in fossil fuel emissions. So emissions last year were about 50 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. And the reality is we've committed ourselves to taking those uh, emissions below 1990 levels, but in fact, they've increased by 40% since then. So until the world gets to grips with its addiction to fossil fuels, we are not going to be able to prevent these awful um, climate breakdown conditions from getting worse, in fact.
1: Um, In terms of the particular episode that is being experienced at the moment, I know John didn't want to call it a heat wave, it's much more extreme than that. How long, however, do you think could it last?
5: I'm not a climate scientist, I'm not a meteorologist, Um, but to be honest with you, um, we're we're used to forecasts that go maybe to 10 days in advance or possibly a little further, but we need to Uh, I suppose, acclimatise ourselves to uh, weather conditions that are going to essentially last for hundreds of years. uh, Because uh, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, once it's emitted into the atmosphere, essentially stays there forever, uh, certainly within human time spans. Uh, Some carbon dioxide starts to break down after a few hundred years. Some of it will remain for thousands of years. So that heat trapping capacity of carbon dioxide does not dissipate. Other gases do, but not carbon dioxide. So if we continue to release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the heat trapping properties are only going to accentuate and make the problem worse. So that's the the reason why the UN agencies are calling this a climate emergency. Even if we stopped all emissions today, we are still going to have to live with the climate uh, changes that that all the previous emissions have brought about. And that means we are going to have to adapt to climate change and we're going to have to change the way we move around, produce goods and uh, heat our homes and all the rest of it, and most importantly, how we get our energy. Okay. So, we need to see a dramatic acceleration in the rollout of renewable energy uh, coupled um, with changes to our land use practices because land use and the way we use land, whether deforestation or certain types of agriculture activity, also contribute to climate change as well. Okay. So this okay. is the new normal, and unfortunately, it will continue to get worse as long as we burn fossil fuels.
1: Okay, I just want to go back to my panel because I'm just conscious that we heard at the start of the programme today, Ryan, from ordinary Irish people who are planning their summer holidays, as you know, many people are um, lucky enough to do in this country every year. And where do they go? Spain, Italy, Greece—these countries that are really impacted now by these extreme temperatures—are people rethinking their choices?
6: I'm not sure that they are, Kira. I mean, you'll get people who may be uh, the few people who make last minute choices about their holidays and maybe somebody who hasn't committed their money and hasn't decided exactly where to go may indeed be rethinking it. They may go further north in Europe, they may stay at home for a staycation Mm -hmm. uh, or they may rethink it altogether. However, for people that have committed the four or five thousand, like thousands of euro, the people save up all year to try and get their kids away on holidays. Some are warm and sunny uh, and they think it'll be it'll be a lovely holiday. I'm not sure that many of them would be prepared to cancel and uh, take the risk of losing that money. A lot of them will go ahead. And as you said before, having never experienced temperatures at that, think it'll be grand. So we'll throw on a bit of sunscreen and another hat and we won't go out, you know, after between 12 and 3. But really, it is very, very hot and very extreme. So I I think that some may regret that choice. OK, let's see what
1: uh, people in Cork uh, said today. Our southern correspondent, Paul Byrne spoke to people on the streets and asked them about whether they would brave the current high temperatures on the continent I'm going there on Sunday but you just have to take all the precautions that people are telling you to take plenty of liquids staying out of the highest temperatures just mind yourself?
0: I'd go anywhere now at the moment to be honest with you so I would but <laughs> well, no do you know what not in that degree
5: so but I don't know I'd have to be over there to feel it
2: No I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't and that's in that's, that kind of the streaming heat anyway, like, you know. I'd be nervous at the moment, yeah. Would you?
4: I'd normally prefer to stay
2: around here,
7: really. What would you be afraid of? Well, supposed to hit intense
4: heat. you know? I wouldn't be a follower of the intense heat, you know. 30 degrees would do me in my max.
2: No, I can go. i have no problem. <laughs> Going. It's all good, yeah. Just put some, some sun cream or that's... Yeah, it's a bit worrying for the environment, but yeah, can't change it, I guess.
1: So pretty mixed opinions there um, today in Cork, but I did hear somebody from the Irish Association of GPs speaking on the radio on Friday, Sinead, and they said, you know, people with young families in particular, or the elderly who are thinking about going away, they perhaps do need to rethink going abroad in these extreme, extreme temperatures but do you have any comeback if you've booked a holiday? Can you say it is simply unbearable
6: or it's dangerous heat if you have a young child or perhaps an elderly person with you? Well, certainly from an insurance perspective, no, not really. I mean, look, you will all remember uh, during COVID when... The- the planes were flying if you chose not to go because you were worried about getting covid you didn't get a refund or your money back if the hotel has opened its doors it's ready to mm. receive you it won't give you your money back now most insurance policies for travel purposes do in- include some extreme weather events automatically but they're really talking about things like you know you've seen floods washing down streets or thunderstorms some- something where it is so dangerous uh, to like that your holiday simply can't take place uh, but You know, something like even extreme heat where you have chosen not to put yourself at peril or not to put yourself at risk, it's unlikely that it would be covered. Uh, Some policies, it is worth checking the small print. Some policies have an optional extra you can pay for called travel disruption cover. Uh, And you'll recall um, maybe uh, some of you with the the volcano that spewed ash, you know, back in 2010. Uh, That kind of thing wasn't covered before. It is now. Uh, But you do have to ask and check. And, And certainly, you know, I'd echo the concern of people bringing very small children or elderly people who can't regulate their body temperature as well as as other people uh, to to rethink it. But unfortunately, it it is very unlikely that just because you decide it's going to be a bit uh, too uh, extreme for you that your insurance company will view that uh, as a valid clause uh, under which to pay out. Uh, The only time it will do that is if uh, the government declares no uh, travel zone. But at the moment, it tends to do that just for places that are war zones or very, very risky to life. Uh, as yet, uh, certainly not in Europe.
1: Um, listen to the, the words being used by John, by Sive, indeed by many people working in this uh, area today, emergency. Emergency is emergency. It's not the first time we've heard that word used on this programme, or indeed other programmes when we were discussing climate change. And yet, do you think, Neil Richmond, that there's still a sense that it is something that is happening abroad? as opposed to something that is happening here in Ireland?
2: Certainly anecdotally, I fear it is. Certainly some people I'd have in conversation, why would we be worried it's raining here? But this is affecting us. This is real. It's extremely frightening. And it's not new this summer. We've seen forest fires across Australia, across continental Europe for the last number of years, um, which are a clear impact of what is the climate emergency. And certainly when we have the debates and we try to get people onside with measures as part of the Climate Action Plan. It's explaining that this will impact Irish farmers, Irish travellers, Irish businesses just as much as it will anyone else. The impacts are very real and that's why it's so imperative that we continue pushing on the very real uh, measures contained within the Climate Action Bill that Louise and I would have voted for previously.
1: What do you make when you hear of these temperatures, um, Louise? It's deeply worrying. I'm actually reminded of a,
8: a slogan that was used at the, uh, I think it was the ETUC, the European Trade Union Confederation Conference a number of years ago, where they said there are no jobs on the dead planet. And that was the trade union movement globally and, and at European level, taking on that level of responsibility and saying, you know, exactly as Neil was saying, this is not something from which any person can be insulated. And it isn't something that any civil society organization like the trade union movement or others can offer opt out of. This is very real. It is an emergency and it is impacting us now and it will impact us into the future. And, you know, we have to think about not just ourselves, not just our children, but our grandchildren and how uh, we can make the changes that are going to be necessary. To would be it make able to...
1: you, sorry to cut across
8: you there, would it make you rethink your travel plans at all? I think it would, yeah I mean if I was uh, to travel to a, a place where the, the temperature was 45 40 45 degrees that's that's just unpleasant um that there, there's no there's no fun there's no holiday there's no relaxation you're just spending all of your time trying to avoid being outside that to me is not my idea of a good time at all um, I think those extreme uh, temperatures and you know some people are well able for them and some people will will obviously will obviously go and you know I'm I'm conscious that an awful lot of people save up week by week. They usually start around Christmas and they save their money. They live for their holiday. You know, they work hard. They really, they they, they want, they need that holiday. They need that bit of rest and and relaxation. But I'm also conscious that, you know, the temperatures are 45, 40, 45 degrees, they're, they're, they're just they're incompatible with with a holiday. Mm. And particularly for those who, uh, you know, young children or um, elderly people, it's particularly difficult for them.
1: I, I feel, John, there's sort of two conversations here because I am conscious that people really look forward to their summer holidays. People love to get away from Ireland and get two weeks in the heat and see their children play in pools and be outdoors and be on beaches. And yet I'm sure you're thinking, lad, your summer holiday is going to be the least of your worries.
4: Yeah, that's what I fear, and I completely understand uh, people's desire to do that, And, and, uh, and yet, uh, small country like Ireland, population five million people. Uh, the last time we had a full year uh, through Dublin airport, we had uh, this is 2019. We had 35 million passenger movements through Dublin airport. Now bear in mind that uh, really only eight, only really a small fraction of the, of the global population will ever fly. So it's us in the wealthier parts of the world that are actually fueling this crisis. And I'm sorry to say, but aviation is a very significant contributor to the climate emergency. So it's a, it's one of the great ironies that we want to get in a plane to go somewhere nice. But the place we want to go to is too hot and we're helping to put fuel on that fire.
1: So what do you think will happen here, Sinead, do you think, for Irish people? Do you think ultimately we're going to decide to stay at home in Ireland or will we just risk it and say the bigger problem is somebody else's problem? Do
6: you know, Kira. like we're an eternally optimistic people and we have to be given our own, you know, ironically, our own usually poor weather. I think people won't really rethink it. I think what they'll think is it won't be that bad next year or I'll go at a different time of year. And I wish we had a little bit of that here and people really enjoyed our heat wave when we had it last month. And, you know, I... I You would hope that people will kind of sit down and see things holistically in the the big picture, but I'm not sure when it's your two weeks and your holiday and you've saved up for it. Uh, I don't know that enough people will. Okay, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now. My
1: thanks to Sinead, to John and to Save for joining me on that. After the break, it's been proclaimed as a turning point, a breakthrough in the fight against dementia. We discuss a new drug, Danimab.
4: Music
1: You're very welcome back. Well, earlier today, it was reported that a new drug could reduce the effect of Alzheimer's by up to 35%. Scientists were quick to label the discovery a major breakthrough in the battle against the degenerative disease. Neil Richmond, Louise Riley have stayed with me and I'm also joined to discuss this further by research and policy manager with the Irish Alzheimer's Society, Dr Laura O'Filbin. You're very welcome to the programme. Doctor, explain how this new drug is actually going to work.
9: So people who have Alzheimer's disease have this sticky toxic protein in their brain called amyloid and denanimab is an antibody that binds to amyloid with our body's immune system and tries to break it down and that's what's thought to reduce the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease and to slow down the progression. So how effective is it? It's not a cure, but the data is telling us that this drug is effective in slowing down the progression. So 40% of the trial participants had um, a slower progression in their activities of daily living. So that means things like managing your finances, chatting with your friends, taking part in daily hobbies. 35% reduction in the clinical decline of dementia. And it's thought that this equates to around four to seven months reduction in the progression of dementia. And that is quite significant to some people.
1: And it depends at what stage of your diagnosis you get prescribed
9: this drug? Yes, this drug is only suitable for people who are in the very, very early stages of Alzheimer's disease. And there's actually clinical trials going on now, even looking at people who are pre-symptomatic.
1: So what you're basically going to get here is more time before the condition worsens. Is that it essentially?
9: Yes, that's absolutely it. So it won't cure you, it won't improve things by any stretch of the imagination, but it will slow down progression. And to some people, this is really important. It gives them more time with their families. It brings in more time for other potential breakthroughs to come out. And it's more time of having independence and being able to live as well as possible and for as long as possible.
1: So we use the word breakthrough and we use the word game changer about this
9: particular drug. Is that what it is, do you think? Is that a fair assessment? I believe scientifically, this is certainly a game changer. You know, we had 20 years with absolutely no Alzheimer's treatments. Um, I think this drug, donanemab, and another drug called lecanemab, which we spoke about last year, they are scientific breakthroughs. Clinically, this drug is effective, but it's not suitable for everyone. It's not hugely effective and it's not perfect. But if you think about, say, the first HIV drugs that we had, for example, they were far from ideal, and now we have excellent treatment options. So our hope here is is that these are treatments that we can build on. So scientifically, yes, it's a game changer.
1: Are there potential side effects though on a when there's a new drug like this?
9: Yes, absolutely. As with all drugs, there are side effects and some side effects of denanumab are quite serious. So people in the trial, a large portion of them did have microbleeds in their brain and temporary brain swelling. Now, for most people, this was asymptomatic. It kind of resolved on its own, but there were people for whom this was life-threatening and three people in the trial actually passed away from complications r- related to these brain swelling and brain bleeds.
1: The one other good thing about this is that this isn't the only hope out there is it for Alzheimer's patients because there's hundreds of, leap of trials of other drugs ongoing at the moment. Yes,
9: absolutely. So worldwide, there's 187 clinical trials looking at specifically treatments for Alzheimer's disease, and that's looking at 140 agents that are actually going to try and change Alzheimer's disease. We have blood-based biomarkers hopefully coming down the line, which means we could diagnose it using simple blood tests. But it's also important to remember that Hope doesn't just come from from drug treatments, you know, hope is also services and supports in your local area. There are so many people for whom this drug will not be effective. And we also need to look at, you know, resourcing those non-pharmacological interventions too.
1: But for those for whom it might be effective, it might buy them more time, more quality of life time. What are the next steps for this drug? How long before it could be prescribed in Ireland, do you think?
9: So the European Medicines Agency is our regulator here in Europe. Um, Eli Lilly, which is the, the drug developer, will file for approval before the end of the year. Now the EMA will take 210 days plus a further 67 days so we are a long way off yet but while we can't control I suppose how long these these take what we can control is how ready we are in Ireland to actually deliver these therapies through our health system. Our health system is not set up to deliver a drug like this so you know at a minimum we need more MRI scanners, we need better diagnostics, we need early diagnosis, we need public awareness. So at the Alzheimer Society of Ireland, we're really looking forward to working with the government, with the clinicians, people living with dementia and their families to look at how can we actually deliver this drug? And also to continue funding, supports and services for all the people for whom this will not be relevant. All right, Dr. Laura Fulburn, thank you for coming into us and giving us that update.
1: In other news today, a major deal which enabled Ukraine to export grain to Asia, Africa and the Middle East has been suspended by the Russians. Well, earlier I spoke with the BBC's Ukraine correspondent, James Waterhouse, and I started by asking him about a series of explosions on a Crimean bridge.
7: Well, he's responded in an unsurprising fashion, I think, when this is a Russian leader who tries to portray Crimea as being a fortress, as being rightfully returned to his country after he illegally annexed it in 2014. So, whenever we see Crimea brought into the equation of Russia's full-scale invasion, Moscow tends to get very defensive. Now, Vladimir Putin has vowed to get revenge for what he called uh, a terrorist attack. It is the second time we have seen the Kerch Bridge, uh, this long man-made structure which connects mainland Russia to the occupied peninsula uh, on the southern coast of, of, of Ukraine that is Crimea. It's the second time we've seen it targeted in this way. But as ever in this territory, we can never say for sure. Ukraine officially hasn't claimed responsibility. Uh, some military sources have told colleagues at, uh, at the BBC that, They were behind it and that marine drones were used, these drones that can travel along the surface of the water. But when Crimea and the Kerch Bridge is targeted in this way, I think it does two things for Ukraine, if it is indeed behind it. Firstly, it does frustrate a major military supply line for both the population and Russian forces that make their way through to the occupied southern Kherson region. But it also psychologically undermines Russia's occupation, because Crimea is still a popular tourist destination. And here we have Russian nationals being told to travel home through other means, through occupied Ukrainian territory, through cities like Melitopol and across the border that way, which is a far more dangerous journey, it brings the war much closer to a lot more people.
1: And yet we see today this grain deal that has allowed for the safe export of grain from Ukraine for the past 12 months uh, fall apart really today, Russia saying they're not going to continue with it, um, going to have a real impact on people. Where do you think those discussions go now?
7: You know more than a month, more than a year and a half since the full-scale invasion, I think we're starting to see patterns. And this grain deal has been the only major diplomatic breakthrough in this conflict. And we've also seen the pattern of Russia continuing to threaten to, to pull out. And now it looks like they've gone a step further and officially given their notice saying they're no longer going to take part. Now, this was a landmark agreement that allowed Ukraine to once again export grain. It's one of the world's biggest producers of sunflower oil and barley. And some of the world's poorest countries rely on on Ukraine and Russia's supplies. Now, what's Russia's main gripe with this agreement? Well, they said there's not enough in it for them in terms of the contract, it's allowed to export its own agricultural produce like fertilizer. But the problem that Russia is getting presented with are existing sanctions being imposed by the West. So even if they can load fertilizer onto a ship, for example, they can't get the insurers to cover that voyage and they can't find the ports that will accept that kind of cargo. So the Kremlin is saying uh, they're accusing Ukraine of, of, of not supplying the world's poorest countries. And they're saying that there's not enough in it for us. this has happened in the past and Turkey, one of the main uh, brokers in this deal, has pulled Russia back to the table. but I think we need to be bright eyed to the fact that Moscow is also looking to frustrate Kiev as well. It has allowed it, this deal has allowed it to export grain once more only by around a third less. Once again, blocking the ports means Ukraine will have to export its product over land, which severely limits, uh, limits its capabilities.
1: Uh, James Waterhouse, we're going to leave it there, but thank you for those insights as always. Uh, Louise, we heard from the UN today, Anthony Gutter is saying this is going to affect millions of people. We hear the US saying they're weaponizing hunger by stopping this deal. Is another spike in food prices looming, do you think? Well, you'd have to
8: hope not, but Russia have effectively uh, weaponized food and food supplies. It's- Absolutely disgraceful. There are going to be a number of knock-on consequentials to this not least for Irish farmers. And one thing we need to see is supports for farmers, absolutely. We would like to see uh, the government use uh, the European Crisis Reserve Fund that was used previously. We think that this, if if uh, the deal is not resumed and by all accounts it won't be, that the knock-on consequences of this actually require a suspension of the normal uh, rules of play because potentially, Uh, this could impact not just on on farmers, but obviously on consumers as well. We're in the middle of a cost of living crisis. People simply haven't got it. We already had last winter, people having to make hard choices about whether or not to heat their homes or feed their family. And that is only going to get worse. So we do think there is scope for government, but more
1: appropriately for, uh, for European intervention at this stage. How are consumers going to feel this, Neil Richmond? Are they going to see it again?
2: It's hard to tell at this stage, but certainly people have felt it before, both in terms of the reduction in the amount of grain coming from Ukraine. Now, it's important when you look at the grain that comes from Ukraine, it's feeding not really Western Europe, but it's down into Sub-Saharan Africa. It's the most people at most at risk who will suffer this. Um, but we saw with the spike in energy prices and the spike in global food markets, that that led obviously to a huge amount of food inflation across Europe, including in Ireland. And we saw prices go up consistently at the supermarket tills over the last eight or nine months. We've seen that start to stabilise as food inflation has slowed down. The, wor- the worry and the risk of this is this could increase food inflation again, which everyone will feel. Um, in relation to European intervention that will of course be monitored if deemed necessary it will be activated both in terms of the impact on our, our farming community but more importantly on average people who do the supermarket shop wanting to know what the price of, not just a loaf of bread, but the knock-on that everything that wheat goes into and so much more.
1: But I suppose in the past, you've said you've gone into supermarkets and asked them to pass on, you know, where there's savings. In a situation like this, where there is going to be a knock-on effect on wheat prices, do you expect supermarkets to be able to absorb that or do you expect that it will be passed on to the consumer?
2: Well, supermarket have absorbed a lot of price increases and we've seen in the last couple of weeks the reductions in over 700 products where there is room for manoeuvre with our supermarkets and where they have moved is on the own brand goods so they can't control the international pricing of certain brand label goods but they can control their own own brand goods particularly in the staple goods those are the ones that have been reduced and will of course be maintaining that they went up far too fast as it was they need to stay at a stable or reduce price indeed we've seen a loaf of bread go down by another 10 cent just last week that's consistent and it needs to keep happening so
1: you don't want to see because we did see wheat prices jump today. You don't want to see prices jumping in our supermarkets off the back of this.
2: No, I don't think there is a, a. I don't think there's a justification to increase those prices in the immediate short term. This is a very new situation. Um, we've seen the suspension of the deal. This deal could be brought back into place in a week's time. Russia have already threatened three times to suspend this deal. They've already, um, um, you know suspended it temporarily for a week a week or two max previously. It is something that can be pulled back. There's no guarantee that this is going to lead into a rapid uh, rise in prices, but it is something that has to be watched carefully. And it goes further at the point of how much we need this war to end quickly and in a way that doesn't give Russia the ability uh, to lord it over global food prices.
1: All right, we're going to, have to leave that there for now, but lots more. Do stay with us after this break. A retired district court judge expressed his utmost concern for children in care in a letter to four ministers and state agencies. Judge Dermot Sims went on to detail how the state could face legal claims for its failure to adequately provide for these children. The letter has featured in a report from the Child Law Project which outlines serious issues with safe and appropriate placements for children in care. Well, here to discuss this further is Dr. Maria Corbett, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Child Law Project. There's, I think, 67 stories in your report. And I think it's important, Doctor, to share some of those stories with our viewers tonight, because I think it really brings home how vulnerable some of these children are and how they have been let down.
0: Yeah. Um, good evening. I mean, some of the stories, their they're, the children are settled. They're in a foster placement. They're doing okay. In some, in one in particular, there was an innovative solution whereby the child was in a foster placement actually with a relative, and also the mother of the child was living in the same placement. That was a positive, good example. But unfortunately, in this volume of reports, there are many reports of children in inappropriate and unsatisfactory placements. So just to give you two examples, they both relate to residential care, even though most children are placed in foster care, these relate to residential care. So one is in relation to a boy, age of nine, and um, from Dublin, um, and due to there not being a placement for him in Dublin, he was moved to the northwest of the country, and um, he was placed in a private providers uh, residential unit. Often these are profit-making, um, uh, businesses or uh, entities, they're either—they're they're not the charitable voluntary sector or, or two, so this is another element of the system. So profit-making uh, unit, um, in that unit there was a decision to move one or two children and the decision was made with two days' notice to move this child again at the age of nine to move him from the northwest of the country to the southeast of the country, bearing in mind he really wanted to get back to Dublin to be closer to his family. Um, the, ch- the, the circumstances of that child is that he needed therapeutic supports, he needed to be in education, he needed stability. But unfortunately, the system couldn't offer him that, and he was moved between these two locations. And so, judges are very unhappy with that. And that is a theme that we saw running through this report. When the judges would come into contact with these cases and see what's happening, they were raising their concern. Um, another case involves a teenage girl. Um, that girl was um, in a placement, there was clearly problems with the placement, and she had been given assurance that she could stay. But within 24 hours of that assurance, she was in school, a call was made that she was. her, her belongings were packed up by the residential unit in black bags, and a social worker called to pick her up and pick up her bags. And really, that is not good practice. None of these abrupt moves are are uh, are supportive of the children who are very vulnerable. That young teenager, her parents are in prison. She faces huge challenges in her personal life. And to treat her that way, I think, is really quite concerning that we would be moving children at that speed. There was no placement for her. So the social worker found a hotel room for her. She stayed there for, for the week, extended for another week. And then when we followed the case again, because we attend court to follow these cases, we found that she was still in a temporary arrangement. And when children are in temporary arrangements, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for therapeutic services to work with them. They want as a basic that the child would be in a stable placement. So it is very difficult the circumstances that some children are facing in the care system at the moment, not all. Many of them are doing really well in foster placements and residential, but for some, it is not It is not appropriate.
1: OK, let me just put some of this to my panel, because Louise O'Reilly and Neil Richmond have stayed with me. I found this story, I have to say, Louise, just so, so troubling. There was another story of a six-year-old um, who had been in four separate placements, and the final placement that he went to was unregulated and unsuitable. I mean... We talk about vulnerable people in society all the time. A a child of that age whose parents aren't able to look after him, you don't get much more vulnerable than that.
8: No, they are the most uh, vulnerable within our society and, uh, and they are being failed and they are being let down by this government. Figures released to my own colleague, uh, Deputy Kathleen Function, show that there are 873 children in the care system that don't have an assigned social worker, so they don't have somebody there who is going to be full time assigned to be their advocate. We know that there is a massive crisis in terms of recruitment and retention for social care workers, for social workers and for people to work in the child and adolescent system. But we don't see any action from the government to address this. I mean, in 2018, um, Taoiseach Faradkar launched his... um a child poverty, anti-poverty strategy, that's now been superseded by another unit. I mean, you can't look after these kids with announcements. They need action. They need personnel. And the government have known for a long time, so this government's in place 12 years, and they have known for a long time that we were facing a recruitment and retention crisis. And yet, 873 children in the care system don't have a social worker. So
1: we're going to keep hearing stories like that. 873 Children without their own social worker. Nobody really monitoring where those children are at. We have these stories today of these children who don't have a permanent place, a safe and regulated, uh, the most basic need place for them to live. Such vulnerable children, we had a report from UCD about children in care being exploited uh, by sexual predators only last month. These children, the, the state is standing in as their parents, That's the state's role because her parent isn't able to do it. And they are being so badly failed.
2: No, the report today is massively concerning and the letter, particularly by Judge Sims, is extremely concerning. And Minister Gorman is obviously directly engaged with him. Um, The government's well aware that this is grossly unacceptable. It's harrowing, listening, reading the report, listening to Dr Colbert through the media today. It's absolutely harrowing and it's a disgrace. However, there is some things being done. It's wrong to say it's not. Yes, there is a child protection unit in the T-shirt coordinating this. That's why there are increased places for people to train as social workers. In order to feed that into the system, I myself look after work permits. We'll be making social workers in the next couple of months able to come to here from outside the state to fill the gaps in the short term. We do need, and we are ramping up the level of accommodation provision. It's not enough, but we're doing an awful lot more and we can and will do considerably more because the reports today, unfortunately, is symptomatic of something that is grossly unacceptable, regardless of uh, the role the state has to play directly or the societal changes we're facing.
1: Yeah, because the t-shirts seem to suggest today that the truth is that there's just more pressure on the system. There's more children who need care than there has been in the past. Is, Is that good enough?
2: But we can't deny that there is more pressure in the system. That's a statement of fact by the Taoiseach. We do see um, more pressure on the system, more people coming towards it for various reasons, and I don't need to get into them, and many of them know it. But ultimately, the system needs to be improved at a greater pace than it is being. But it is being improved, but an awful lot more, of course, can be done.
1: Yeah, okay, look, we're going to have to leave that there for now, but we will return to that really important subject. Um, my thanks to Neil and Rhys for coming in to me this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can also find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.